Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the State of California, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. It took some time, but he got there. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon, and this is Up First from NPR News. It took not only time, but some concessions that make the role of Speaker less powerful. We have the details. More than 200,000 new jobs in the latest labor report what 2022's strong labor market means for you. And a new batch of U.S. weapons to Ukraine, what it says about the state of the war there. Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. After 15 rounds of voting, over five days, Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House, and here he is addressing... That chamber shortly after midnight today. I hope one thing is clear after this week. I never give up. NPR national political correspondent Susan Davis joins us probably after very little sleep uh, to talk about the new speaker. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Aisha. So, I mean, look, for the first time in a century, it took more than one round of voting to elect a speaker. But we should be clear. You had lawmakers joking that people needed to check whether Kevin McCarthy still had both kidneys. I mean, because, (laughs) and that is a joke, but the truth is he had to give up a lot, right, to get this done. Well, he had to make some agreements to pull together this hard right faction that was opposing him. There was some concessions to agree to put them on key committees like the Rules Committee, uh, which is a powerful committee that decides what bills go to the floor. He agreed to allow 72 hours before any major bills could get a vote on the floor. He also agreed that he wouldn't bring to the floor any big spending bills, that they would do votes one by one on individual bills so you don't get those 1.7 trillion massive packages like Congress approved last month. He also agreed he'd loosen restrictions to make it easier for members to offer amendments to legislation and some handshake agreements to allow votes on bills to do things like enact term limits and balance the budget. That is a lot. He certainly enters the speakership in a weaker position than any of his predecessors. It's also worth noting that a super PAC aligned with Kevin McCarthy put out a statement this week saying that they would not engage in any open Republican primaries in 2024. You know, typically party leaders like to play a role in recruiting and electing the candidates that are going to serve in their chamber. But this has been a point of contention with activist conservatives as well, that leadership comes in and gets involved in their primary fights. So in order to get this job, He had to water down the speaker's political power, the speaker's legislative power to decide things like who gets on those committees, and as well as his ability to drive the agenda. I do think that on some of these concessions, they're more popular than they might suggest. You know, a lot of Republican lawmakers have complained about not having enough input in the legislative process. But the problem McCarthy now has is if he runs afoul of any faction or any one member of his party, he could also face now referendum votes on his speakership at any point in the Congress because of that rules change that he agreed to. So, you know, there's so much focus on the hard right faction, but don't lose sight of the fact that they have the majority because a lot of Republicans won swing districts, won more centrist district, and he's got this balancing act now, right, of keeping the far right happy, but not going so far to alienate the very lawmakers who helped deliver the majority. I mean, you know, it seems important to, to note Um, The timing of this yesterday marked two years since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. 
Right. And many of the Republicans who were trying to derail McCarthy were also some of the most vocal election deniers, folks like Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Andy Biggs of Arizona. McCarthy himself, after January 6th, briefly distanced himself from Trump. But today, they're very much back as political allies. McCarthy even made a point to praise Trump at a press conference after the vote last night. I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should anybody should doubt his influence. Trump endorsed McCarthy for speaker. Trump obviously is running for president again. So politically, one of the things that's going to be interesting to watch is how McCarthy might use his power to help Trump win the nomination, especially as factions within the party would like to see the party move on and nominate someone else. You know, the speaker fight is over, but I mean, it would seem that this is foreshadowing a new Congress that is going to be Uh, rocky, to say the least. Sure. I mean, you know, he only has four seats to play with. And even if Republicans can get a majority of 218 votes on every single thing they want to do, it's divided government, right? You know, every bill that will be signed into law is going to have to be negotiated with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President Joe Biden. So McCarthy might need to expend a lot of his political capital to pass this conservative agenda But it's going to be dead on arrival, and he's going to have to navigate real fights to keep the government open, to raise the nation's borrowing limit, without alienating those mainstream or more centrist conservatives who really want to prove that they can be a responsible governing party, especially after this week. That's NPR national political correspondent Susan Davis. Sue, thank you so much, and please get some rest. Thanks, Aisha. The high-tech industry has seen some serious layoffs lately. Amazon is cutting 18,000 jobs. Salesforce is laying off more than 7,000 people. But the broader job market is still humming along. And the unemployment rate last month was just 3.5%, its lowest level since 1969. NPR Chief Economics Correspondent Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Employers have been adding hundreds of thousands of jobs month after month. What's been going on? Yeah, December was another solid month of job growth with 223,000 jobs added last month. The pace of hiring has slowed since the beginning of last year, but there are still lots of jobs available. What's also encouraging is that more than 400,000 people joined or rejoined the workforce last month. And economist Michael Puglisi of Wells Fargo says that's helping to close what had been a big gap between employers' demand for workers and the number of people available to fill those jobs. It's just one report, right? You know, you don't want to put too much weight on a single reading, but it has the right mix of ingredients for, you know, evidence that labor supply and demand are coming back into balance. And that may spell some relief for the Federal Reserve, which has been worried that an overheating job market could fuel inflation. Yesterday's report doesn't erase those concerns, but it does suggest things are moving in the right direction. And Wall Street's excited? Yeah, the Dow Jones Industrial Average soared 700 points yesterday, or more than 2%. The other major stock indexes rose by a similar amount. 
Investors are hoping that as the job market gradually cools, it will take some pressure off inflation and allow the Fed to slow or even stop raising interest rates. Average wages in December were up 4.6% from a year ago, which is still probably faster than the Fed would like, but it's a smaller annual increase than the month before. Uh, We are going to get some more comprehensive wage data later this month, uh, and that's just before the central bank is set to make its next decision on interest rates. At the same time, Scott, are there weak spots in this week's report? You certainly see a slowdown in manufacturing jobs. That's a sector that's particularly sensitive to rising interest rates. Factories are still hiring, but not as fast as they had been. Another thing to keep an eye on is temporary help firms. They cut 35,000 jobs last month. Temps are often the first people hired when businesses are growing and the first to be let go when demand tapers off. Jim McCoy is senior vice president at Manpower Group, a big temp help company. In general, there's been a slight softening in demand for temporary workers that's been happening since the summer. Recently, um, hiring was a little bit down, particularly in support of retail sector, which you would normally see more of a pickup of temp hiring around the holidays. That was down a little bit. At the same time, McCoy says he's still seeing robust demand for temp workers in fields like healthcare. And healthcare also added a lot of permanent workers in December with 55,000 new jobs. Scott, what do you think we can look forward to for the job market in the new year? We're probably going to see slower job growth. Uh, Employers added 4.5 million jobs last year, and we're not likely to repeat that, especially because all the jobs that were lost in the early months of the pandemic have now been replaced. So far, though, there has been no sign of widespread job cuts, despite some of those ominous headlines you mentioned and concerns about a possible recession. It seems like after struggling for much of the last two years to find enough workers, employers are going to be slow to hand out pink slips if they can avoid it. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Turning now to the war in Ukraine, the U.S. is sending another military aid package to Ukraine, the largest one yet. And it includes some new hardware. And Pierre's Greg Myrie has just returned from a six-week reporting trip to Ukraine and joins us now. Greg, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. And what's in this package? Well, it really runs the gamut. It's a wide range of armored vehicles, artillery systems, air defense systems, ammunition to replace stocks that are running low. The overall package is right around $3 billion, larger than any of the 28 previous packages sent by the Biden administration. And this is significant for a couple reasons. Uh, First, it sends the clear message that more heavy fighting is expected. A lot of these weapons are designed for ground combat with Russian troops or possibly possibly a Ukrainian offensive. And second, the Ukrainians are extremely concerned that the U.S. and other NATO countries might lose interest and international support could dwindle. But this shows there's very strong military and political support still going their way. We should note uh, Ukraine has been pleading, I think that's a fair word to use, pleading for tanks. Instead, it is getting armored vehicles. Remind us of the difference. Yeah, so the U.S. will be sending dozens of Bradley fighting vehicles. Now, at first blush, they resemble tanks. They travel on treads. They have armor on the body, a gun in the front, and they can destroy enemy tanks. But it's not quite as heavy and powerful as the mainline 
U.S. battle tanks. Now, the Pentagon says that tanks require more maintenance and training, um, and we've also seen the Biden administration incrementally increase the systems that it provides to Ukraine while often stopping short or just a little bit short of everything that Ukraine wants. Still, these Bradley vehicles will be an upgrade uh, in the level of protection and firepower for Ukraine, and Ukraine's foreign minister says it's a very good start to the year, showing that Ukraine is getting weapons that it couldn't get last year. Greg, so many reports have focused on uh, the Russian uh, effort to knock out the electricity grid in Ukraine. Tell us what's happening on that front, please. Yeah, the Russian bombing campaign hasn't let up, and the expectation is it will continue all winter. But the Ukrainians are proving remarkably resilient. I mean, one recent example, Russia has unleashed more than 80 drone attacks in recent days. Ukraine says it shot them all down. Now, the past three months of Russian missile and drone attacks have taken a cumulative toll. Ukraine can't produce all the power it needs every day, maybe 70 percent or so. Ukrainians typically have to endure daily power outages, but Ukraine keeps patching up the power grid. So far, the Russians have not been able to knock out power for extended periods, days or weeks at a time. Of course, we're approaching the one-year mark uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war. What do you think we should be alert for in the days and weeks ahead? Scott, we've heard a lot of talk about the war slowing this winter, but so far we're not seeing that. There's still very heavy daily fighting. Now, a lot of military analysts say that the Russians have little prospect for making any major advances this winter. They seem to be mostly digging in and entrenching their existing positions. The Ukrainians, in a bit of a contrast, do feel the clock is ticking, that if the war becomes a stalemate, the pressure will grow for a negotiated settlement, with the Russians still occupying a large chunk of Ukrainian territory. So it is considered quite possible that we could see a Ukrainian offensive this winter. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much. My pleasure, Scott. And that's up first for Saturday, January 7th, 2023. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon. Up first, back tomorrow with a report on how people in Somalia are trying to manage severe drought, hunger, and conflict all at once. And there's more news, interviews, books, and music this weekend on the radio. Weekend Edition airs every Saturday and Sunday morning. Find your NPR station at stations.npr.org.